when we when we moved into our house last year. Um, the house is beautiful, but the gardens would have been maybe described by an estate agent as, you know, being a, uh, offering huge potential to the adventurous gardener or something like that. It was basically just thick mud everywhere. Everyone else would have just said it just looks like mud, and it was. And uh, so over the few weeks after we moved in, I've got a rake, and I'm kind of raking it all, trying to get it under some kind of control, take out as many stones as I could. It's really back-breaking work, and uh, after a while it started to look like maybe I could sow some grass seed into this now and so we got to that point and Taryn said hey wouldn't it be lovely if we just took a little section of the garden and we didn't grow grass on it but we turned it into like a vegetable patch and I, I wholeheartedly kind of leapt at that idea that you know we kind of sat on a park on, on a garden bench looking at this little patch of soil and imagining you know rows neat rows of crops of kind of tomatoes and coriander and basil and black currants and all of that. I was imagining a land flowing with milk and honey where, where you know, you'd have to work in pairs to lift up the courgettes and stuff like that. I was that was the kind of what we had in mind. And to be fair, for the first few months, that it, I mean, it wasn't quite like that, but it was kind of working in that direction. And then, of course, as happens so often, life took over and now it doesn't look so much like that. You know, it looks, I mean, we like to think of it now is a, like a little section of meadow in the middle of our garden, you know, it's just kind of not really quite what you'd hoped. And um, just a few weeks ago, our little daughter, she was like, this is a disgrace. And uh, she went out with a, I don't know, like a trowel and a fork or something like that. She goes towards the vegetable patch and she's looking at it all and, um, you know, doing what she can. And uh, after a little while, she comes back into the house. And, and I promise this isn't made up. She's clutching a strawberry. She's like, look, look what we've got, a strawberry. And we were like, maybe there are some more strawberries there. You should go back. And so she goes back another half an hour. She comes back. I think it was about 12 strawberries we were growing in our meadow. I mean, come on, what a joyful thing. The point is, do you know, so often in our lives, we aren't aware of God's activity. And we don't perceive the amount of fruit that there really is. You know, so often, if we were to stop and pause and objectively look at where is God in my life? Where is he at work in my life? Maybe we might find some things that would cause us to be surprised. And equally, we might also think to ourselves, and certainly this is the place that I'm so often at, crumbs, I've been a Christian for 25 years. Surely there should be more fruit than this. It turns out, and we're going to see this in this passage today, that the Lord is really into fruit. He's into sowing. He's into investing. He's into pouring all kinds of good things into our lives. And what he's looking for is fruit. And so we're going to continue in our series, The King and His Cross, which is an, a kind of a journey through Mark's Gospel that we've been in for about a year now. And uh, it's just been such a joy to just walk with the disciples through Mark's Gospel. And we've come to the moment which is immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm going to read from verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. Come up on the screen as well. It says this, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one eat from you ever again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This is the tree that he'd cursed the day before. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is God's word to us today. Let's find out what it's all about. So Mark, who is the author of this whole book and of this passage, he often likes to observe how people respond to Jesus. And so you see it kind of grouped into three different groups. You see the disciples and how they're responding to Jesus. You see the crowds who are often amazed or bewildered or something like that. You see their response to Jesus. And then you see Jesus' opposition. They're often the religious authorities and the religious leaders and teachers of the law. And their uh, response to who Jesus is. And as we reach the, what's really the last quarter of Mark's gospel, what we see is that Mark starts to focus in on the opposition to Jesus. And, and you start to see that their response is dark. And so actually what we're going to have from now on is a sense that darkness has descended on the narrative. Like this is, this is um, all leading up to the moment where Jesus himself stands before all of these religious authorities, is judged and then is crucified. And so there's a darkness about the narrative from this point on. So later on, he'll be judged by them. And there won't be very much righteous judgment in that moment or justice. But this is the moment where he judges them. So he's going to be judged later on by them, but this is the moment where he pronounces judgment on them. And so this passage is really trying to highlight to us that Jesus is the judge. Um, The previous passage, Jesus sits on a donkey, is carried into Jerusalem, and that's a picture of him as the king. And throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are saying, when the king comes, he's going to come as a judge. He's going to bring judgment. And his judgment will be very severe and very serious and will have eternal impact. And so we're already expecting him to come and bring judgment. But the very first verse that we read there, which was verse 11, it says this. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. 
And that phrase, he looked around, is uh, a picture of judgment. Actually, several times through Mark's Gospel, that phrase, he looked around, appears. And it always appears in the context of Jesus pronouncing a judgment on people. And so if you're taking notes, which some of you hopefully are, chapter 3, verse 5, and also chapter 10, verse 23, uh, it, it says, he looked around, and that's not a good thing. And, and really what that's pointing back to is a moment in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 where Jesus is um, judging his people for their sin. And it says this, chapter 7 verse 11 of Jeremiah, it simply says, I've been watching, declares the Lord. That's not a phrase you ever really want to hear from God, is it? I've been watching. And so what we see in this moment is he gathers the evidence, he looks around, he sees the, the money being, you know, uh, changing hands, he sees all of this merchandise being bought and sold in God's house, and he gathers the evidence, and then, the follow, then he retreats, he retires back to Bethany overnight, he comes back the following day, a bit like a judge having retired to consider his verdict, and now he's coming back the following day to pronounce a judgment on what he sees. And he announces that judgment in two different ways. First of all, with this really weird story, and this really weird moment with the fig tree. I don't know whether you thought it was weird. Every time I've read it, I thought, this is such a strange story. Jesus is walking along. He's heading towards the temple. There's a fig tree there. It's got loads of leaves. And he goes up towards it. It doesn't find any fruit on it. It's just leaves, really. And then he goes, die! You know, that, you know like... <laughs> You know, like, you'll never produce any fruit again. And then they come back later on and there's, you know, it's just like twigs left there where the tree was there before. I mean, that is quite a weird story. What the heck is going on there? Um, my family and I, we used to take our kids to swimming lessons on Saturday morning. Hands up if you've ever been in that kind of thing, yeah. So the, the last thing you want to do on a Saturday morning is get up really early and go to the swimming pool. Uh, and yet that's what we did for several years. And there was a vending machine there that always ate your money every single time and yet I kept feeding money into this vending machine and I'd be like oh what shall I get cheesy what sits you know what is that F5 so you press F5 the spiral thing goes round doesn't it and then it just waves the what sits at you like uh, uh, you're not getting those or, or the or the you know the, the biscuit boost like Sorry, not today. And how brilliant would it be to have the, the gift of the miracle of destruction? To be able to say to the vending machine, you will never produce figs again. You know, you will never produce cheesy watsits. Hand over the cheesy watsits right now, or I'm going to curse your butt into oblivion. That would be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> is, is that what Jesus is doing here? Has the fig tree caught Jesus on a bad day? And he's hangry. You know, it actually says he's hungry. Is he just like, just really grumpy, you know? He and his disciples have descended on perhaps Mary and Martha and they haven't got enough food and so the breakfast is a bit poor and he's really just grumpy and he sees this fig tree, he's hoping for fruit, there's nothing there, he's like, die! <laughs> Probably not. That's not the Jesus that we know, is it? It's not the Jesus we see. We don't see throughout the pages of scripture a capricious or vengeful Jesus, a Jesus who just gets angry for no reason. And so when we come across passages like that, what do we do? Well, what we do is hopefully we've got a study Bible or a Bible commentary or something like that that we can dip into that will help us to understand what it is that God's really saying through these weird moments. And when I did that this week, 
what I discovered was that the commentators want to point us, point out two really important facts or things that we need to notice about that moment. The first thing is we need to notice the context. So where does this weird fig tree story come? Well, of course, it sandwiches this moment in the temple. So he, he sees the fig tree, it's got no fruit on it, and then he curses it, and then he goes into the temple, clears the tables and all of that, and then we see that the fig tree doesn't uh, exist anymore. So there's something about the context of this moment that is important. The second thing that we need to know is that the fig tree throughout Old Testament prophecy so often symbolized the people of God. So often throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God says, my people are like vines that don't have any grapes on them. They're like fig trees that don't have any figs on them. So if you're taking notes again, you'd find that in Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 or Micah chapter 7 verse 1. God's basically saying, I hope to find fruit amongst my people, but I didn't find it. And so when you put those two things together, what you discover is that Jesus is dramatizing a parable. He's enacting a parable. He's living out some kind of teaching right there and then. So what he's actually doing is he's saying, hey, come over here, disciples. Come and look at this fig tree. And, and what you'll see is, from a distance, it looks really impressive. It's all leaves. Just like my people. You know, they've got this massive temple. It's a huge white and gold gleaming thing that you can see for miles and miles around. And it is really, really impressive. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And yet, when you get closer, you realise that, yes, they're sacrificing. They're doing all kinds of sacrifices and stuff. They've got loads of Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law. They're going through all the motions. But really, my people are all leaves and no fruit. So he pronounces a judgment in that parable that he's enacting out. This is not good. My people have not produced the fruit that I was hoping for. And it's not a good thing. The second part of the judgment, so the first part of the judgment that he pronounces is this weird fig tree moment. The second part of the judgment is, of course, what happens by his actions and what he says in the temple courts, where he says, this is so a million miles away from God's heart and his vision for this place. I wanted it to be a, a, a house of prayer for all nations. And yet this is just this place of just extortion and rob, robbing the poor and... and this is just horrible. So it seems to me that at the heart of this passage that we've read, which has kind of got two parts to it, what, we, what we're seeing is two themes. And the first one is judgment. Jesus is clearly portrayed as the end-time judge. He's the one, who, you know, he's the vineyard owner who is coming to find out, is there any grapes for me? He's, he's the guy who... who uh, um, has invested the talents, who's coming to find out, have my people invested their talents according to my will? He's the judge. And judgment is a heavy theme, right? And then there's the theme of fruit. Jesus is coming to look to see what fruit there is. There's one thing that we need to understand before we investigate those two things, and this is the thing. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, 
you have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. You have nothing to fear. You know, it seems to me, like, I, obviously I'm a pastor, I spend lots of time with people, and so many people that I've sat with over the years have said something like, do you know, God is angry with me. You know, he's punishing me. I, you know, what I'm experiencing in my life right now is as a result of things that I've done in my past. And, and so Jesus is constantly coming into my life and he's turning over the tables in my life. You know, I'm reaping what I sowed. God is angry with me. And the, the amazing truth is that if you have trusted in Christ, and I'm not assuming that everyone has, either here or in one of our sites, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. In fact, the very opposite is true. You're an object of his mercy. I, um, I, this isn't on my notes, but I uh, spent some time a few weeks ago with a, a leadership psychologist. And it was, quite, it was just quite an amazing time. But one of the things that came out of that time together was that he pointed out a lie that I've believed for 20 years about myself and when he pointed it out and we looked at it together and then he removed it from my life everything changed what we believe about who we are is incredibly important and honestly I believe that this is a word for some people today you have believed that you're under judgment you have believed that God is angry with you you have believed that you're reaping what you're sowing and actually if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ you are holy and blameless in his sight you have been washed whiter than snow as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed his your transgressions from you you are hidden in Christ So we have nothing to fear. So when we see these moments where Jesus is clearly portrayed as the judge, they should cause us to be thankful and to, to celebrate and live in and experience the freedom that we have, uh, you know, has been paid for by the ransom of the life of Jesus Christ. Rather than feeling like, oh, there you go, this explains it. Jesus is an angry person and he's angry with me. So if we take those two themes, judgment being one, fruit being the other, hallelujah, there is no judgment. You know, on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, Jesus will say, if I could just interrupt at this moment, you know, actually, this person is already clean. His punishment has already been paid for. However, Jesus is still looking for fruit. It is still possible to live for the well done, to lean towards the well done, to say, God, I want to live in such a way as it delights your heart. And so actually there is some stuff in here that we can learn about how would we go about doing that? How would we go about living in such a way as my life produces fruit that God says, that's what I was hoping for. That's, what, that's why I invested all these good things into your life. Um, or to put it another way, what fruit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is Jesus growing in my life? And I've just got two things, and then we're going to pray for one another. The first fruit is a changed life. A changed life. When Jesus went to the temple the day before, having ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey, he was looking for a people who had changed. 
In fact, 600 years before, God had said to Jeremiah, I want you to go and stand at the gate of the temple, pretty much in the place where Jesus is standing, 600 years later. He says, stand at the gate of the temple and shout this into the temple. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5. This is just so... Uh, interesting what he says. This is what you're to stand at the gate of the temple and say, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? And of course, Jesus comes 600 years later and nothing has changed. And so he quotes this thing. Has it become a den of robbers? Yes, it has. Jesus was longing, I'm sure, in that moment to come in and see something so different from what Jeremiah had seen and yet nothing has changed. If I lived in the olden days, I'm fairly sure that my occupation would be the town crier. Not because I um, have a particular, you know, um, desire to be a ringer of handbells, but because my emotions are really, really close to the surface. Do you get it? Uh, uh, town crier? Anyway, we'll just move on. Cause I'm just somewhat... Boom, boom! I'm sure in the sights. I, I imagine in King's Wells, they're absolutely kidding themselves. They were way ahead of me. Anyway. Um, it's funny, you know, like I once went to a seminar all about the gift of prophecy and um, as part of this seminar they were saying some people, the way that the gift of prophecy comes to them is that they experience the emotions that other people experience and, and so God gives them an insight into what's going on in other people's hearts and lives. And I went up to the guy afterwards and I said, I think that might be me. You know, I think I experience quite a lot of emotion. And he said, yeah, but those are your emotions, aren't they? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of totes emotion, you know. But one of the things that makes me weep and, and um, just lose it more than anything else is, is baptisms. I, I, love, I love hearing the stories of people's lives that have been dramatically changed by Jesus. And, and I mean, hasn't that been one of the sweetest things about our journey over the last 10 years? That these, these relentless stories of God's kindness and grace to people. I'm thinking about somebody, for example, who came into this very room for a funeral. Uh, and he'd been a, a drug addict and in and out of prison most of his adult life, just caught in that cycle of crime and punishment. And on that day, Jesus reached into his life. And, you know, over the weeks and months that followed, he, he surrendered his life to Jesus. He got clean from his addictions. Uh, you know, he started working in a job for the first time in his adult life. Uh, he, he became a leader in our church. He's done the leadership, leadership academy. It's like, Jesus, you are so brilliant at turning people people's lives around. You know, I'm thinking about another couple whose marriage, you know, in, in lots of ways they weren't spiritually searching. They weren't, you know, oh, there's a Jesus-shaped hole in my life, but their marriage was in a real mess. And somehow Jesus reached into their lives and not only did he mend their marriage, but also he introduced himself to them as their friends. Just, just amazing. And, and the reason why I cry at things like that is, well, first of all, because it just makes me realize, do you know what, this is all worth it. You know, like a lot of effort goes into what we're doing here in, in the sites. You know, there's so much time and energy and money that goes towards making what we do happen, not just on Sundays, but during the week. Isn't it so nice to know that it's worth it? 
But the other reason I weep at moments like that is because when I see those changed lives and what Jesus has done for them, I think to myself, if Jesus can change their lives, maybe he can change mine. If there are things about their lives that Jesus can dramatically intervene and alter, then maybe the things that I've been living with, the patterns of behavior, the, the, the cycles, the, the habits, the, the, the thinking, you know, maybe the things that I've tolerated in my life for many years, if Jesus can do that for them, maybe he'll do it for me. We should expect, anticipate, celebrate the reality that as Jesus is the gardener and he's gardening away in our lives, he's sowing things, investing things, uh, uh, watering things, that one of the key fruits that, that we should learn to lean towards, reach towards, hope towards, pray towards, contend for, is that Jesus would change us from the inside out, a changed life. And the last thing is this, fruit number two, a love for others. The, the story of the Old Testament is when you look closely at it, a story that tells us how deeply God loves, not just his people, you know, that his chosen people, but the whole world. And, and so what you see is his plan for, how am I going to bless everyone on the face of the earth? And his plan is what you'd really call pay it forward. You know, he's going to bless Abraham and his family, and as a result of them being blessed, they're then going to be a blessing to everyone on earth. And, and really his idea is that over time, Abraham's family, family would grow, not only by birth, but also by adoption. You know, that there would be many, many more people from other nations who would say, I want to live under and experience the blessing of God, and they would kind of attach themselves to Abraham's family. That was the dream. And, and the temple was really the, the, the symbol of that. It was like, this is the place where people are going to gather from all of the different nations and they're going to worship God together. Just listen to Isaiah 56. This is God's vision for the temple and in particular the, the foreigners, the people who weren't previously part of the people of God and how they would come and worship him too. Um, Isaiah 56, it says, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's such a beautiful vision. And that's why Jesus is so gutted when he sees that his house is not house of prayer for all nations. You know, people haven't been added and added and added to his people. In fact, the very opposite is true. What he discovers as he comes into the temple is that the very place where the foreigners were supposed to be, which is called the court of the Gentiles, that was the place for them to come and offer their sacrifices to God, that was the very place where their, you know, it's the equivalent of Wonga.com and cash converters and, you know, payday loans and all of this stuff. This is the place where people are being ripped off. And there's no room for anyone from, you know, another nation to come and offer anything to God because it's just stacked high with merchandise and, and money changing and all of that. And so don't you just love Jesus' anger in that moment? He's furious. And so he just starts throwing the tables to one side like, just, this cannot be. This is supposed to be where people come to, 
to meet with God, to love him and adore him, and there's no room, and so he, he's just making space for them. The fruit he was looking for was love. He was coming in, he was looking around, he's like, is this a place where people are loved? Is this a place of welcome and inclusion? And, and, you know, for people who are normally excluded, do they get kind of swallowed up into the people of God? Is this a place where people who are far off, are the, poor, the poor, the broken, the people who would never consider themselves the kind of people who would be with God, this is supposed to be where the people of God love them and bring them in. And he's so furious that it isn't. It's never supposed to be just about us. It's always supposed to be about the rest of the world. And so like, how do we apply that? How do we apply that idea of um, making sure that in our hearts and in the life of our church we're a people who break down barriers and make room for people who are not here? Um, I just want to su suggest one idea re really, which is that I think we need to le lead lives of invitation. I think we need to live out the invitation. You know, I wasn't a Christian when I was a child growing up, and um, as providence would have it, I um, was in a registration class at my secondary school with a guy called John Ford. And because John Ford had his surname was Ford and I was Freeland, we were put next to each other in most classes for the first three or four years of the school curriculum. And um, he was a Christian. And he used to go every Tuesday and Thursday lunchtime to the equivalent of the SU group in the school. And the reason I knew that he used to do that was because he invited me about 10 times a day. And, you know, like 10 times a day he would be saying, Chuck, you know, on Thursday, what are you doing Thursday lunchtime? And I was like, I am so not going into that room. Like, I've got way more important things to be doing. Like, for example, hitting a plastic ball up against the wall with my hand. You know, anyone used to do that at school? Or it was just me. Yeah, just me. Uh, <laughs> as a particular game that we used to play, or queuing up outside the uh, tuck shop. You know, that was what I was doing at lunchtime. There was no way I was going to the SU group. But he relentlessly invited me. And eventually, after, uh, I, I would think, something like two or 3,000 invitations, I stepped through the door of this SU group and shortly after that gave my life to Jesus. I'm only a Christian because of John Ford who is now in a country that I can't name, planting a church in an Islamic country which is always on the news. Amazing man of God with his family and his little kids. My mum, like I said, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but my mum was once invited, after I'd become a Christian, she was invited to a Bible camp thing, uh, you know, a great big Christian conference, and um, she said yes. And I was like, Mum, why are you going to that? And she said, well, I like camping. And, and they tell me that I can bring my tent and camp there. I was like, well, you can, but do you know what you're going to? She was like, no. Uh, so she goes along the first day, she pitches her tent in a field with 10,000 other Christians. And she's like, oh, I, yeah, I kind of see what you meant now. And, and the first day, she takes her water carrier to the water tap, and she fills it up with water, and then she can't even lift it, let alone take it back to her tent, because it's too heavy. And she's just looking around thinking, what am I going to do? This is a disaster. And this man just steps out of nowhere. He was absolutely massive. She says he's about seven foot tall. And he could lift this thing with his little finger. And he said, I'll carry that for you. And so they walk back towards her tent. As they're walking back towards the tent, 
she's just asking him, oh, so, do you, you know, what do you think about all this Christian stuff? And, and she has all these questions about faith and, and Jesus, and, and by the time they get back to her tent, she's decided that she's that evening going to surrender her life to Jesus. And this seven-foot-tall guy then disappears. She never sees him again. But that evening, she surrendered her life to Jesus. She's only a Christian because Diana, her friend, invited her to that camp. I'm only a Christian. I'm only here today because John Ford invited me to his SU group. The heart of Jesus, the, the fruit that he's looking for in our lives is the fruit of love for other people that would break down barriers, that would, would welcome people who don't know that they're welcome. And that's the kind of fruit that Jesus is longing for in our lives. It's a fruit of um, changing our lives. It's a fruit of love for other people. And may the Lord make that fruit big and plump in our lives. Why don't we stand?